0: This is an Odyssey Original.
1: This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Rob Archer.
2: And I'm Charles Feldman. Can the governor of California end the Hollywood strikes? We'll go in-depth into whether Gavin Newsom is just playing politics, or if he can actually, I don't know, get something done. If you get really
1: sick, you'll be glad a certain group of people is moving to California. Hmm... We're also going to talk to one of the co-creators of the hit docuseries, Telemarketers, which I loved, by the way, about what makes that industry so seedy.
2: We start, though, with Governor Newsom and whether he can help end the Hollywood strikes. Here's what Governor Newsom told CNN about what he says he can do in dealing with the strikes.
3: I'm in a different position as it relates to trying to be constructive on both sides to utilize... The formal authority I have as governor, uh, the convening capacity I have as governor, the moral authority to the extent I can bring it into the conversation to try to get everybody to the table—that's the work I do in state to address the issue of not just public sector disputes, which I deal with often, but private sector disputes.
2: Well, Dan Walters is a Cal Matters political analyst. Dan, thanks for being with us. Uh, so, welcome.
4: what does the governor? What can he do? Well, I think this is a difficult uh, thing for the governor because he has, uh, I guess you'd say, friends on both sides. He's obviously a very uh, union-oriented uh, governor. He's done many, many things for labor unions, uh, and he boasts of that, in fact, in a CNN uh, interview. But at the same time, he's uh, most of the executives in the entertainment industry in California are Democrats. And he's gotten a lot of support from them through his campaigns, two campaigns uh, for election and re-election, also a campaign uh, against a recall. And so he he uh, way is kind of caught in the middle of this thing. And well, and, obviously- and, and and I want to
2: be you know just so that we're we're clear with listeners because you're using a very sort of euphemistic phrase that that he has friends on both sides. What we are talking about is as a politician, he gets I presume money for campaigns from both labor unions
4: and the motion picture industry doesn't he yes he does and he has responded to the support he's gotten from the industry both both factions in the industry by uh in, in the midst of a large budget crisis this year actually expanding the subsidies that the state offers the for film production in california so they have had a kind of a most favored nation status in california and he's now in a situation where his two friends or allies or supporters, both factions, are are in conflict with one another. And so he's kind of has to dance the dance in between those two things, try to be seen as an honest broker, I guess, trying to bring them together. But uh, it's, it's a very delicate situation for this governor, given his history with him and, and his status with both factions who are in conflict now.
1: So, the risk of jumping in with both feet and trying to do something about the strikes uh doesn't outweigh the reward that he could possibly get. Is that what you're saying?
4: Uh, yeah, I mean he tries to be he tries to get into it too much. He says he's been meeting with both sides, talking to both sides. but if he tries to get in it too much and it goes on and on and on, I guess it kind of goes to his that uh, he, he he becomes kind of the goat, he becomes the guy who couldn't deliver the peace in this strike that he's striving to get. On the other hand, he can't very well ignore it since he's got allies and supporters on both sides as well. And it, of course, is a major industry and a very high profile industry. So it's it's a tricky situation. It's a, it's a kind of a, a political minefield that he has to tiptoe through without hopefully uh, exploding something under his feet.
2: I was going to say, I mean, mean, is he he simply kind of, I don't know, blowing smoke up of everybody's, you know, what?
4: Well, we don't know exactly how much he's gotten involved. He claims to have been conversant with both sides and convening meetings and trying to essentially broker some sort of a deal. But we don't know how deeply he's involved with it. And maybe it's just something that he wants the public to say, yes, I'm aware of this. I'm trying my best to settle it. But we don't know how he's really what he's actually doing, if anything, to get us settled other than than maybe talking to both sides.
1: All right. We did uh, reach out to the governor's office, but uh, he was not available to uh, be interviewed on the show. Thank uh, Dan Walters, CalMatters political analyst. Still ahead, while some people are leaving California because it's too expensive, there is one group that is moving in. We'll tell
2: you who. And why? Good luck if they can afford the rent. (laughs) Good luck. Yeah. Right now, though, United is the latest airline to confirm that it found aircraft engines with questionable parts linked to a certain supplier. Now, this came just a day after Virgin Australia said it found falsely documented engine parts. With us is Sean Pruschnicki, who is a retired airline pilot, currently a professor of aviation safety and operation at The Ohio State University. Sean, thanks for being back with us. Absolutely. I'm glad to be here. So that's one place where you don't really want to find, uh, you know, questionable parts. You don't really want to find them on almost anything, but you probably don't want to find them on an airliner. How does this happen?
3: Well, so so there's a couple of things to think about for this situation. Um, If these parts are really um, defective or potentially defective, uh, their location in the engine would... um, would be disastrous for the engine because they're, they're toward the front. If they fail, they would move through the engine and it would just destroy the engine. And they would have an engine failure. Now that in itself is not a nightmare because uh, the airliners fly fine with one engine. Now, having said that, what everyone needs to think about is there's absolutely no proof whatsoever that these parts are defective. Okay this very much looks like just simply a paperwork issue. Okay? Remember how you know you see everyone's talking about the uh, the paperwork when parts come in to the you know, United States they have to have paperwork with them showing that the part you know meets all the requirements. The FAA requires that. Now the, what we don't understand is why these parts came in without the correct paperwork
1: okay so if it's just a paperwork issue if they straighten out this paperwork issue don't aircraft officials still have to check out all of those parts to make sure that they are okay because one thing you can't do in the airline industry is assume something is not a problem until you check it out and make sure it's not otherwise you've got a crash
3: yeah, well, I, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think what they're going to do is if they get the paperwork issue straightened out, and I think they're still going to replace the parts. Absolutely. Now, I, I I don't agree that that means you're going to have a crash. I mean, you could have a destroyed engine, but we train to fly with single engines all the time. These airplanes fly great with single engines. Now, that's not ideal. We don't want that to happen um and certainly in this situation and i agree with you that that's exactly what they'll do if, if it's paperwork and they get straightened out they're still going to replace you know all those parts um so that's not going to be a problem i think here really really what the question is what what i'm concerned about and i'm willing to bet um i haven't talked to anyone at the faa but i'm willing to bet um them you know that the biggest concern is why is this manufacturer doing that? What is really going on over there and why would they do that intentionally and willing to bet it was intentionally? Um, well, I, I mean, so so
2: there are actually a couple of issues here. I, I mean, on the most extreme end of the issue is whether these parts are – uh, which shouldn't have been on the plane because they're not the parts that were supposed to be on the plane, regardless of whether they work or are of sufficient quality. Nonetheless, they weren't supposed to be on the plane because they weren't the parts that they should have been sent to the airline or installed on the plane to begin with, right? So that's that's one problem. The second problem is, you're right, I think, a paperwork problem, but it's a bigger question, isn't it? You know, people think of airlines as being very methodical. They think of airlines as having innumerable uh, checklists. In fact, m- you know, medicine operating rooms uh, took from aviation the whole concept of having a checklist so that surgeons yeah. don't operate on the lo- on the person's wrong leg. Uh, right. So isn't the other issue here how these parts, whether it was done deliberately by the company or not, how did it make it from there? To at least two airlines that we now know of, United and Virgin Australia, onto their aircraft before they were discovered, or at least into their their shipment area, maybe before it was installed, but still there, ready to go. How did that
3: happen? Well, you're right. that That is another question. So what I what we need to think about here is on the when the engines are built, or on the mechanic side is. What is the requirement for them to check any paperwork? I mean, you know, if they receive the parts, is that already assumed that it's been checked at some level someplace else? Or are they required to check the paperwork? You know, I don't know that. If 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 a mechanic, you know, goes to the stock room or whatever to get these parts, is the paperwork there that they have to look at? or probably not. I mean, we don't know that. So you're exactly right. There is another step right there. How did they even make it on the airplanes? So there there's a, there's a, there's a trail here of issues. But what I want to emphasize is we have no proof right now that these parts are necessarily dangerous and going to, you know, blow up engines. It, it is a concern. It's absolutely concerned, but hmm. one of the possi- but one of the possibilities, one of the possibilities is still, they are quality parts that meet the standards. All right, but we but we have all these other issues. We just don't know, but they're doing the right thing.
1: All right, yeah. uh, Sean, thank you so much. Sean uh, Purchnicky is uh, currently professor of aviation safety and operation at the Ohio State University.
2: So to come, we're going to talk to one of the stars and co-creators of the hit HBO docu-series Telemarketers about the dark side of a murky industry. Murky uh, industry. Murky is one pretty way murky, to put it. Yeah. Murky. yeah. I, I watched the show and I
1: loved it. Is it, mur- is
2: it murky? Not the show, but the industry. Uh,
1: it was pretty murky. Yeah. No. Oh, yeah. No. Uh, right now, though, uh, would you pay to use uh, Twitter or X, whatever they call it now? No. Elon Musk is floating the idea, and you got Charles' immediate no. feedback. <laughs> no. Mandy Hoskinson, I think I'll join you. Uh, Mandy Hoskinson is the president of the Social Media Club of Los Angeles, owns of Marketing Agency. Uh, Zole. thanks for joining us.
5: Yeah, happy to be here.
1: So uh, is it just me, or does it seem like Elon Musk is deliberately trying to kill X or Twitter?
5: I cannot tell. It really is a mystery to me if he's trying to take it down because he used to hate it so much, or if he's trying to prove a point, or if he's trying to amplify his new memoir. Well, I'm
2: thinking that maybe he's thinking that, uh, you know, newspapers for a long time were free, right? And and then when some of them put up a paywall, there were people who said, oh, no one is going to pay for what they were getting for free. But, you know, lo and behold, many people, in fact, a lot of people— ended up doing just that. So maybe he's thinking that, sure, people, you know, used Twitter, now X, for free up till now. But, you know, some people may go away, but others will gladly pay. And he'll make money to replace the ad revenue that has been kind of, uh, you know, going away in droves.
5: I absolutely agree. Uh, We forget that the Internet was started by hippies and DARPA and the government and we, what happened is that social media was free, the internet was free, and the model that people chose was ad revenue, and nobody really came up with anything different. Uh, but paywalls are happening across the internet, now with journalism online, of course, with streaming getting more expensive, with YouTube getting ads. And so it is kind of revolutionary, as much as I hate to admit it.
1: Yeah, the marketing seems to have gone away. Elon Musk is currently engaged in some kind of warfare with the Anti Defamation League that uh, many people just cannot figure out, all while he's insisting he is not anti-Semitic, he has invited uh, some white supremacist people back onto the platform, and that is what seems to have driven a lot of marketers and a lot of advertising away from the platform. So now he's saying the problem is bots, and the way to get rid of bots is to start charging a fee for everyone to use Twitter. Now, there is the possibility that Elon Musk is just, you know, talking out of his nether regions. And uh, he's not really serious about doing this. But then again, if he gets called on it, he might just go, well, I am serious about doing it and I'm going to do it. Just like the name changed to X, which does not seem to have been thought out at all. Do you think that's a possibility that he's just talking just to talk?
5: He's done other things he said he was going to do. And so every time I think he's not going to do that thing, he does it. So I would not be surprised if he does it. There's already a blue checkmark charge. uh, And even if it's a short-lived experiment, it really seems like he's just doing things to get attention and make a point. And so it kind of wouldn't surprise me.
2: So uh, I'm going to say something and I'll probably be struck by lightning. Uh, But uh, is it just possible that he's right, Elon Musk, and he has a point? I mean, Twitter is not an X. Uh, I'm not going to call it because It sounds stupid. Uh, Twitter. Uh, You know, it's not a government agency. It's not taxpayer supported. It's not a it's a private business. It always has been a private business. It just wasn't run well as a private business. If somebody is going to spend, as he did, forty four billion dollars to purchase something, doesn't he really have the right to do as he pleases with it, no matter how many people squawk about it?
5: I struggle with that, because in many ways, it's a publication as well. It's been a source of truth for a lot of people for a long time. It's been a source of democratizing media. But at the same point, you're absolutely right. If you think of it as a publication, people do things with publications all the time. And he's been one of the first people to be so bold as to do these experiments. I absolutely don't agree with a lot of the things that he's doing to run the platform. Uh, Something that a lot of people haven't talked about is that he explicitly removed some of the people that were calling out misinformation, uh, people had, there's a system on Twitter to call out misinformation. They called it out and he completely suppressed it. He deleted that misinformation. And to me, that was the beginning of the end of Twitter. I think these new introductions are also going to the end of Twitter and maybe he'll just call out people that aren't part of the Elon Musk cult. And maybe, you know, we'll be better for seeing one of the most Heinous social media experiments in a long time. <laughs>
1: uh, very quickly, uh, from a marketing perspective, you know this thing as as you seem to indicate would would kill Twitter. And now there are some platforms that could be positioned to kind of take that space where there weren't before. Threads got a lot of attention. Uh, Blue Sky is getting a lot of attention. Could one of those really now take advantage of this?
5: Yeah. You know, I'm not sure if it'll kill Twitter, but certainly a lot of these other platforms are taking up people's time. I think Threads is great for social media managers. It's a lot of fun over there. Blue Sky is kind of like the professional tech space. So it's almost like LinkedIn for tech. And lastly, LinkedIn is blowing up and has been for two years. So there's this interesting vacuum and people are experimenting. And frankly, it hasn't been like this in a long time. So I'm enjoying
2: it. Would you you pay for Twitter?
5: I already pay. Oh, you pay for the oh, checkmark? Oh, I check already. Mark. Yeah. It's my job to know what's going <laughs> right. on in social media. Right. And even though I personally have left the platform since that misinformation moment, mm-hmm. I leave that up because it's my job to be informed and, and to right. keep up with what's going on.
1: All right. Mandy Hoskinson, president of the Social Media Club of Los Angeles, owns a marketing agency, Zole. You're listening to KNX In-Depth with Rob Archer. I'm Charles Feldman. A lot of people leaving California because it is just too expensive, but that is not scaring one group of workers from moving
2: in. Do you wonder who that could be? Nurses mm. it turns out. Nurses are Nurses. flocking. Yeah, they're flocking to California despite the high cost of living. Here to try to explain this is California Nurses Association President Sandy Redding. Sandy, thanks for coming on with us.
6: Oh, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me today. So,
2: you know, almost every day we keep reading about or hearing about an exodus from California, this group leaving, that group leaving. People can't afford to live here. They can't afford to buy homes. They can't afford rent. Uh, And now we're hearing that nurses are are flocking to California. How are they doing that? Why are they doing that?
6: Well, I just know that in my area, when I make my rounds in the hospital, um, I'm an operating room nurse and when I make my rounds in the hospital to check on nurses and to see what's happening on the floors, um, I do meet a lot of different nurses coming from different states, and they wanna come here because we have a lot to offer. Um, You know, we have the safe staffing ratio law, and because of the California Nurses Association's strength, you know, our union strength, we put laws in place for nurses and patients, and we also have good benefits and such, Um, But the ratios are really critically important because nurses go into nursing to care for our patients, and we want to give the very best care. And if you have too many patients, that can't happen. So the good news is uh, we do have the ratio law, which, you know, it it sets a standard, um, and that means that you can only have a certain amount of patients in any given unit. And it really helps because we can give excellent care, um, and we also have break nurses. Um, in California, and the break nurses make sure that we get um, respite when we need to have a meal and nourish our bodies, and we can come back refreshed. The, the good news, too, is that we have a workplace violence law because we have seen an escalation in violence um, in the workplace. And if, if staffing isn't appropriate, and if, you know, under certain conditions people are sick, um, they can't get their call light answered in time. Or family members are having issues. There is an escalation in, in violence, and we want to make sure nurses and other healthcare professionals, um, as well as the patients, are safe. So, okay, um, those are some of the things.
1: Right. Why? So, so it's it's a less stressful work environment here in California, and that I can see how that draws a lot of people. But. It is still very expensive to live in California. Is the pay enough to enable them to maybe trade off the uh, little less stress for a lot more money to spend?
6: It seems like that's the case because they are coming. And there are lots of different places in California that aren't as expensive as others. You know, I live in Bakersfield, California. Um, but, yes, the, the working conditions are, are critical. It doesn't mean that we don't have um, stressors in the work environment. Certainly we do. But the good news is that the, when we have CNA, our union, and strong contracts, we can push back to make sure that our professional practice is perfect, protected and that we can give the very best care for our patients. And so, yes, um, we do see that, that the trade-off um, when you have less patients and you have more time, uh, when you get home, you're less fatigued if you have less patients and a decent workload. Doesn't mean that it's easy um nurse work is is a challenging profession but it's also it's you know the art and science of nursing and when we come home most of us are female right in our profession we are dominated by um, women in our profession and therefore we come home to make dinner and take care of our kids and um all of those things so it it helps when you have less stressors in the work environment it helps the home environment as well and certainly we've come a long way with our contracts in making um, pay equity uh, because men, male nurses and female nurses all make the same. So it's really good. We make sure that we try and have um, retirements in our contract because we do work long and hard.
2: Let me ask you something because you you touched on it. You mentioned that you're in Bakersfield. So when we say that that nurses are flocking to California and California is a huge place, is it that they're flocking to very select areas where – the cost of living is more reasonable. Are they not flocking to the L.A. area, to the Bay Area, where, you know, the cost of living is, is through the roof if you can afford to have a roof?
6: It seems to me like it's it's distributed evenly. And, and certainly um, the corporations are saying that there's a nursing shortage, but there isn't a nursing shortage. There's a shortage of nurses that want to work in the hospitals under certain conditions. So we have to improve the working conditions in order to retain qualified nurses. I do believe that that there are nurses going to Los Angeles and the Bay Area, as well as the Central Valley where I am. All right. Uh, But I I think it's incumbent upon the corporations to continue a positive work environment.
1: All right. Thank you so much. That is Sandy Redding, uh, the president of California Nurses Association.
2: You know, we are trying to think about uh, things that annoy people. uh, And and one of the things aside from us, Sorry, uh, must. You know, telemarketing calls annoy people. Mm. I personally, I hate it when strands of spaghetti don't separate. Right, that annoys me. You go on the warpath for that. Oh, I. I just, remember you called me in the middle of the night
1: one night, complaining <laughs> about your spaghetti that you zonkers. made six
2: hours ago. I go zonkers about yeah. that.
1: Uh, we are talking about telemarketers. It's an industry with a dubious reputation, to say the least. And that was the main point of this HBO docuseries. Uh, got a lot of attention. Uh, telemarketers. And with us now is the co-director and co-creator of that show, Sam Lipman-Stern. And Sam, thanks for joining us. I'll say right up front that uh, I watched that uh, when it hit HBO Max and uh, loved it and thought it was just so well done. We want to thank you for joining us today.
0: Thanks so much for having me. I'm a fan and I appreciate you guys having me on today. Thanks a lot. Uh,
1: So uh, we came up with shady, seedy and murky. Uh, What other term can we apply to uh, telemarketers?
0: Well, telemarketers are, uh, you know, maybe some of the most hated group of people in the United States, I would say. Um, But, you know, I was a telemarketer for seven years. I I dropped out of the ninth grade at 14 and uh, my parents said I had to get a job. Tried Burger King, McDonald's. Everyone said I was too young, and then a buddy of mine told me about this telemarketing company that would hire anybody. So uh, that's so I, I I had a a telemarketing journey, and that's what we explore in the HBO documentary.
2: So, what is the worst thing other than that they're annoying? But what's the worst thing about telemarketers?
0: <laughs> well, I think that. Um, the worst thing about telemarketers, well, specifically what we were doing, what we exposed in this HBO series, is that we were essentially, you know, scamming people. We were raising money on behalf of police organizations, uh, veterans groups, uh, firefighters, cancer organizations, and you know, I thought it was just a crazy telemarketing job. We'd be calling citizens all across the United States, raising donations. But it turned out it was a big time scam. So in terms of, you know, telemarketers, I what well, we were telemarketing donations that oftentimes didn't go where they were supposed to. I think that was a pretty, a pretty dark part of the telemarketing world. But we never really wanted to demonize the callers. You know, the people on that were just trying to get, you know, minimum wage, uh, get a $10 an hour job. We always wanted to, you know, those are just regular people trying to make ends meet. But. The organizations and charities that were scamming Americans um, and owning these charities and these telemarketing companies, they got very rich from uh, America's generosity and to giving to these these what sound like good causes.
1: Uh, One of the things that was fascinating in one of the episodes as telemarketers gradually gave way to robo callers and you guys, while you were investigating, got a call from what turned out to be robocaller, but it sounded live. And it was the voice of a friend of yours. But there was something that other people might not have known about that voice. Tell us about that.
0: So when I was on the phone, you know, working the phones, uh, raising money, getting these donations back in, you know, I started in 2001, right after 9-11. And we'd be calling, we're all calling from a boiler room. um, And there were these boiler rooms all across the United States but the industry has evolved it's crazier more wild west and stranger than it's ever been right now in 2023 and we got a call from one of our buddies that we worked with back in the day in the call center but he had actually passed away so his robo huh. his robotic voice using ai called us and asked us for a donation from beyond the grave and he is calling us right now and he passed away over a year ago so that's where we've gone to in this crazy industry is is ghosts you know calling from beyond the grave
2: so you were a telemarketer you said for what seven years
0: yeah, I I worked from 2001 to, to 2009, okay. so about seven years. So
2: did you decide in part to do the documentary out of a feeling of what, guilt and to atone in some way?
0: Yeah, it really was that. I mean, originally we just started, you know, filming inside the office when I was a teenager and just putting these, you know, office shenanigan videos on YouTube. But once we realized that what we were doing was kind of a scam and, and pretty dark, um we decided that we wanted to basically atone for what we were doing by uh, telling the story of this wild telemarketing industry for the first time to the American public. And we didn't know it was going to take almost 20 years but <laughs> to get it finally out there on HBO, but finally it's out there. And now people can watch and hopefully make the right decision when they get the call to make the donation.
1: Uh, very quickly, uh, there was one... Uh... In one of the final episodes, you you finally got a meeting with a a senator, I think. And what was so angering about that was that while you did get the meeting with him, he did show up for the meeting. It really felt like that he just was condescending and blew you guys off quickly.
0: Uh, Tell us a little bit about that. So we so so Pat Pespis is the the star, one of my good friends. uh, And him and I are really the ones that, you know, the documentary follows investigating this wild world that we were a part of. Pat's dream was to testify in front of Congress on the subject, and so we landed a interview or, or a conversation with Senator Richard Blumenthal um, to to present him all the evidence that we had collected over the years. And we were we were definitely excited and, and definitely happy. We got to you know give the senator credit. He gave us the t- he gave us the time of day, but we were supposed to get an hour with him. He gave us seven minutes. And, um, you know, his staff said that they were going to give us time after the interview to present our uh, evidence. And uh, that was not the case. They told us to leave, followed up with them over and over. They never responded. So we did kind of get we did get blown off, although we do want to thank Richard Blumenthal for giving us the opportunity. Now, after the documentary dropped, there was a rumor has it that his social media pages were blown up with comments telling him, hey, call Pat, call Pat. I I can't, you know, really giving him the business for how he handled it. And he put out a press release last week um, and mentioned the documentary in it. And he's actually, because of the documentary and all the pressure, he's trying to make some changes um, and proposing regulation in Washington, but only after the documentary came out. But Very cool to see some results.
2: But if I get a a robo call from the senator, I shouldn't give (laughs) any money.
0: Oh, uh, I would say yes. I would say if you get a robocall, especially if you hear um, it's it's our friend who unfortunately passed away. Oh, do yeah. not give any money over the phone when you get that. robocall. Yeah. All right. Uh, thank you so much. Sam
1: Lipman, Stern, one of the co-creators of uh, the TV show Telemarketers, it is still up on the Max app. And if you have not seen it, didn't give it a chance, please do, because it is well worth the time and investment in watching that show. You will learn a lot.
2: And you can always go to the law firm Shady, Shady, and Murky. Murky. they are in downtown L.A. <laughs> You're uh, in they're, trouble.
1: You're really good. <laughs> That's going to do it for KDX In Depth today. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow.